There are, there are two pictures, um, two big pictures that we are given in the Bible of, of our relationship with God and, and what it's like. And the first of those is the picture of him as our father. And we're his daughters, we're his sons, we're adopted into his family. And I don't know about you, but I like that image. And that's, that's one that I gravitate back to. Uh, but there's a second one, and it's one that we talk about a lot less, but it's, uh, as I've been discovering, a core picture for, um, for our relationship with God. And it's this picture of, um, of marriage, that uh, Jesus is the bridegroom, and we are, as it were, the bride, that he is the husband and we are the wife uh, in this sense, that he is the lover of our souls. And even as I describe that to you, um, you may well be reacting internally. That, that is not an image that necessarily sits easy with us. Not only with the blokes, but probably particularly for those of us who are blokes. It's not something that we would naturally gravitate towards. It can seem a little sloppy. It can seem a little sentimental. Uh, it can almost seem irreverent as well to speak of the holy God uh, in these kind of this language of a bridegroom and, and us as his bride. And being married to him. Uh, it may well be that you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus and, and you've come along just to find out how strange Christianity is or isn't and we're talking about Jesus as the lover of our souls and you thought, I thought it was weird and now I know for sure. Um, and so, welcome. Uh, so for all of those reasons and, and, and probably more, this is an image that's it's right there at the heart of the Bible but, but we, we can shy away from it. And I've been discovering it um, for, for, for a while now, and it feels to me like discovering it for the first time. And um, I think I kind of always thought of it as a little bit of an edge thing. This is like an image that's on the edge. It's in half a verse somewhere in the Bible, and some people take it out of context. But it's absolutely not. And uh, I, I don't know if you've ever seen one of those magic pictures that are sort of like illusions where it's like it's a picture of a rabbit but it's also a picture of an old woman do you know what I mean and it's like you're looking and looking and looking you see the rabbit you can't see the old woman and then someone points out oh this bit's her face and at that point you know we get it and then when you see the old woman it's like you can't unsee her she, she's all that you see um, for me it's been a little bit like that it's been, I, I haven't really seen this in the scripture, and now what I'm finding is this is, this is everywhere I look. And uh, just to give you, give you a, a few um, examples of it, in the Old Testament, the great picture of God's relationship with Israel is one of a marriage. And so he marries the people of Israel, and the sin of Israel, the main sin uh, in the Old Testament, is that they worship other gods, it's idolatry. But the idolatry of Israel is, is described in language of adultery. It paints this, in many places in the Old Testament, this graphic picture of Israel as an unfaithful wife to her husband, God. And then in the New Testament, um, John the Baptist, the one who introduces us to Jesus, who kind of like paves the way for him, he introduces himself, him as the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. John talks about himself almost like an usher at a wedding. Then Jesus himself, he talks about himself in the language of he's the bridegroom. And he tells these stories, these parables that are pictures of a wedding, a wedding banquet or uh, a time when 10 virgins go out and they're waiting for, for the, the bridegroom to arrive. 
So it's right there at the heart of the New Testament. And even more so, it's what the New Testament is pointing us towards, what it's building up to. Because in the book of Revelation, this picture of our future, the, the language of God coming to earth and making a new heaven and a new earth is the language of a wedding. It's like the wedding feast of the Lamb, where again, Jesus is the bridegroom and we, the church, are his bride. And then this is in the letters. So in Ephesians, Paul talks about husbands and wives, and he talks about marriage. And then he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So it's everywhere, strange as it may seem, the picture of a bridegroom and the bride, a husband and a wife, uh, two lovers who are one in flesh, is a picture for us of our relationship with God. And so... If we can, if it's possible, let's park the strangeness of the image just to one side and let's allow it to speak to us of of how he feels towards us because as I've gotten into it, I've realized there is some incredible truth here that we want to digest. And one of the best places to go uh, to do that is a book called The Song of Songs. And if you've never come across it, it's in the Old Testament, and it's, it's really a, a love, it's poetry. It's really like a love story. Um, and so think of the great love stories of our time, Romeo and Juliet, Posh and Bex, Richard and Judy, all depends what generation you're from, Ross and Rachel, Mike and a kebab. These, these, <laughs> these great romances that we become obsessed with, right? So all of those romances, they pale into insignificance in comparison to what you're reading about in the Song of Songs. Because it's the story of, of love between a king and his maiden. And uh, it's a celebration of human love. And we can learn so much from, from the book about human love and love in our own relationships. But, but it's also been read, rightly so, for centuries as a picture of an allegory, a picture of the relationship between Christ, who is the king, and the church, who is the maiden, and the love that exists between the two. And uh, once you start reading it, you can see that you are really off to the races pretty quickly because it starts with the maiden and she just like right from, from the off talks about how much she desires the king. So it says in chapter 1 verse 2, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is more delightful than wine. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me to his chambers. That's in verse 4. So by the time we got to verse 4, she's already saying, I want the king to take me to bed. That escalated pretty quick. Um, it's, it's, the, it's the maiden's longing for the king that speaks of our longing for Jesus. Our longing for God. And a little bit, there's a part of me that, that absolutely connects with that because, a big part of me, because you think, you see this in the scripture, we know we're to long for him. We know we're, we're to desire him. So in, um, in the Psalms, it says this just in different words. It talks about one point, the psalmist says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. Elsewhere it says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. We're told that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. That we're to to long for him. The invitation was never to just a satisfactory working relationship. It was always to a love affair. And this idea of our wanting to see his face, 
Our longing to hear his voice is like, yeah, okay, we don't live there um, always, but we know that's where we're meant to be as his people. That's what we're meant to be. So we can perhaps connect with it on, on that level. But you know what? What has really blown my mind as I've, as I've read this book again has been not the bits where the maiden, us, speaks of her desire for him. It's actually been the bits where the king, he, speaks of his desire for her, us, that way around. And uh, when the king is talking to the maiden, it's out of the depth of who he is, and he's telling her uh, how he feels towards her, how much he desires her. Not long after I moved to Watford, I was living on the Meriden, just down the road, and I was cycling home, 10 o'clock one night, and I saw this lad, who was about 15, sitting on a fence, crying. And that didn't happen very much. I, I, I went over to him and I just said to him, how are you? And he obviously wasn't doing very well. And then he told me a bit of his story. And he told me that uh, he'd, he'd never known his dad. His mum had died a couple of years before. His, both of his older brothers were in jail. He was being looked after by a social worker who didn't want to know. And his girlfriend, who lived down the road, had just dumped him, which is why I was sitting there crying. And I, I didn't know what to say to him, um, but I, I'll never forget what he kept saying to me over and over was, I just want to know that someone loves me. I just want to know that someone loves me. And the truth is, however much we can pretend it's not the case, and however many things we use to hide it, the reality is in all of us as human beings, there is that longing and there is that cry. I just want to know that someone loves me. And the greatest and ultimate answer to that is that we come to know a God who is love in his very nature. But isn't it the case that for so many of us, not always, but sometimes quite often, we feel insecure in his love. We doubt it and we question it. And, and, and it's like we've come to know him, and yet there's still that part of us that thinks, I just want to know for sure that somebody loves me. Well, if you can relate to that, if that's where you're at, if you ever have questions or doubts, if you have insecurities about the love of God for you, may I suggest reading this um, love poetry and hearing the words of the king spoken to the maiden as God himself, Jesus, speaking to you. Because when we do this, it becomes very hard to doubt his love. So here's, here's a few examples of some of the things that the king says to the maiden. So this is in uh, chapter 2, verse 14. And this is obviously like love poetry from two and a half thousand years ago or something. So the lyrics are a little bit dated. They might not be the images that we might have chosen today to describe the people that we love. But uh, here it is anyway. So uh, chapter 2, 14. The, the king says to the maiden... My dove in the cleft of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountainside, show me your face, let me hear your voice. Like a modern equivalent of that might be if there's a, a boyfriend who's absolutely head over heels for his girlfriend and they're sitting there together and she's just staring at her phone on Instagram and he turns to her and says, my love, my dove, would you look at me, lift your eyes from the screen and look into my face and she might look up and say, what do you want? And then he just says, I don't want anything. I just want to look at your face. Show me your face. I love your face. Uh, it might be like, you know, there, there is, 
he texts her one night and just says, can you call me? Please call me. So she rings. Hello, what do you want? I just want to hear the sound of your voice. Can you just talk to me? Tell me about your day. I don't care what you're telling me about. I just love to hear your voice. Your voice is so sweet to me. Now, can you imagine a boy feeling about a girl in that way, a man feeling about a woman in that way? Well, the image is that God himself, Jesus, feels like that about us. Really? He wants me to show him my face? He thinks my voice is sweet? Really? Yes, really. And when the penny begins to drop on this, then do you know what? It, it transforms so much because it goes from, I need to pray because it's a good thing to do, to, I'm going to show him my face. He wants to see it. He desires it. It goes from, I need to, I need to worship because I should, because we, you know, that's what Christians do, to he longs to hear the sound of my voice. He desires that. It's sweet to him. His desire is for us in this way. And then uh, here's another bit. She, the maiden describes her, her lover, the king, running towards her. And this is what she says in verse 8. Listen, my beloved, look, he comes leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering in through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. If you're a bloke here, I don't know what the look is that you're going for, but in those days, to look like a gazelle was that's, that's where he wanted to be, right? And so this, she's, he is a gazelle. <laughs> like, um, look at him. He's dancing on the mountains. But like, that's the image, right? And so and if you've ever watched any David Attenborough programs, there's always gazelles running around mountains on those. And so you get the, what's the, what's the picture? Energy, grace, uh, effortless passion, seemingly. They're running. And, uh, and she's saying, this is how he approaches me. What do we think about when we think about God approaching us? For, for, for some of us, what can come to mind, again, perhaps not always, but often enough, is he's reluctant. Oh, it's you again. You know, he comes, but it's, but it's slow. And that's absolutely not the picture from this, from this image. It's energy, it's, des it's desire. Uh, it's, it's almost effortless grace. Uh, I think of you know, the opposite of hesitation. Think of like the father in the story of the prodigal son when he sees his son in the distance and he runs towards him. That's how God feels towards us. He runs towards us. And as I um, kind of like meditate on some of this stuff and ponder it, one of the things that comes up in me is this just can't be true. Can't be true because I know what I'm like, and I see everything in the mirror. So how can he desire me in this way? There's no way that can be true. Um, how can he be attracted to me? Um, and I wonder if in part that comes up in us because we think of our relationship with God in these terms, uh, in the way that we think of all other human romantic relationships. And the way it works uh, in, in human relationships is we try and make ourselves attractive so that they'll be drawn to us, right? But you've got to be attractive for them to want, you know, for them to be attracted. 
And it's, most dating these days happens online. So you come up with the perfect profile, the wittiest profile you can imagine. You find the best picture that has ever been taken of you in the history of your lifetime. And you post it, even if it's 10 years old. And, and, and then you go on the first date. And on the first date, you wear your best outfit. You tell your five jokes. You relate the four funny things that have ever happened to you in your life. And you hope that you seem attractive enough for them to come back for a second date. And then what your ultimate aim is, is for them, when they really work out what you're like, to still be attracted enough to want to stay. And we think that's how it works with him. Uh, we can think, okay, I've got to be attractive to him. I don't want to put him off. And so I've just got to make sure that, you know, I'm on my best behavior. And, and a lot of the time we know that's, that's not what we see in ourselves. So we struggle to think how he could be drawn to us. And again, imagine it like a couple dating. They've just started dating two, two, three weeks ago. And, you know, he rings her up and says, I'm just round the corner. Surprise. You know, like what would any human being in that situation be if you're in your house? I've got to tidy up, right? Running around like a headless chicken, putting the dirty dishes in the cupboard and like hiding the laundry and trying to make your life look like it's semi-organized. Before he knocks on the door, before he's peering in through the window and the lattice and all that stuff, he's like, he's coming, you know. Like, and we can think that with him in the way that he approaches He's coming. We've got to look good. We've got to get busy. Tidy up the mess. Hide it all away. Otherwise, he might not be interested. It's that, if that's where we're at, we've missed the heart of the gospel completely. I've got to get my mess sorted so that he'll be drawn to me. Do we understand what the cross is? I know I, I, I do and I don't. That the, the whole message of the cross is not that he saw we were sinful, died for us, then realized, actually, they really, really are sinful. I hadn't quite tweaked that. I now regret that sacrifice I've made. That was not, that's not the gospel. The message of the gospel is he sees us in our mess. He knew before we were ever conceived how much, how much sin was going to come out. He knew before we were ever born what a mess we would make at times of our lives, that the, the worst aspects of our personality are not a surprise to him. They do not catch him off guard. He knows our houses are messy, and he understands that our souls are messy too. He understands that our minds are broken and dirty. He sees all of that, and still, like a gazelle leaping down a mountain, like a father running for a son he hasn't seen, he's gone and made a mess of his lives, like Jesus Christ coming from the throne of heaven to the cradle in the dirt and ultimately the cradle of the grave, he comes towards us. That's, that's the whole message. And we sit here thinking he's not attracted to me because of my mess this week. I think that. I've got to come back to this book again and read the God who fell in love with me and trust in the goodness and the truth of it. And my question off the back of that is, okay, so you're drawn to me in that way and you see it all and you still come running. It's not that he doesn't care about sin, he despises it. He just loves us that much. You, you, you still come running. My question is, why? Why? And do you know what the answer is? Um, you know, it's like the story goes on and there's a lot of like language in here that you're like, is that? I'm reading this and I'm thinking, does that mean what I think it means? 
as they get towards the bedroom chamber. Is, is he saying what I think he's saying? Is she saying what I think she's saying? I remember Mike telling me that, you know, when he became a Christian and he was just reading through the Bible for the first time, he got to Song of Songs and he was like, what the heck? Someone has spiked my Bible. Um, there's all this stuff in there about caressing and enjoying each other's bodies. You read it for yourselves. But it's, is that what they, are they talking about? What I think they're talking about, yes. The goal of all of this is, is intimacy. It's closeness. And the language that Paul uses in Ephesians, he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And he's taking that image of the most profound intimacy that can, can exist between two people in a, in a marriage. And he's saying, that there's an even greater intimacy than the oneness of flesh that can exist between human beings. And it's the oneness of spirit that exists between us and Jesus our Savior. His goal is not that we might just do stuff for him, although we will work with him in this world. His goal is love. His goal is intimacy. His goal is you. He desires me and he desires you. And if we can absorb this, the implications of it are so far-reaching. And the maiden, she, she gets it. And so there's a few places where she says stuff like this. I'll just read this to you. Verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 10, she says, I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. She, she was so confident of his love that she could say something like that. Um, just imagine if you were able to wake up in the morning and know, absolutely know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, beyond the, even the faintest whisper of, of a question in your heart, I belong to him, my beloved. His desire is for me. Can you think about how we would pray differently if we just knew that his desire was for us? How we would serve him better if we just would, were just at peace, that we belong to him and his desire is for us. It is. It is. And a question to finish is, you know, what is the practical application of this talk? Having done all of that, you know, what's the practical application? I've got to have a practical application. The practical application is this. For us, all of us, to enjoy it. Imagine you won a holiday to the Caribbean and first class, you know, you travel there, uh, you get out, it's beautiful sun, you remember the sun really does exist and it's heat and you remember what that felt like, you hadn't felt that for so many years and, you know, you go to this amazing five-star hotel and you walk out onto the balcony and there's the view and there's, a, you know, bathing in the sunshine and stuff. You wouldn't at that point say, what is the practical application of this holiday, would you? What you would do is you'd be like, have one. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to, I'm going to get out on the sun lounger and I'm going to bake in the heat till I'm as pink as can be. I'm going, to, I'm going to soak this up. I'm going to enjoy it. The practical application is we get to enjoy him. And commands such as love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength, all they are is they're an invitation to respond to his love for us which came first to the fact that he already loves us, desires us even, with all of his heart, all of his mind, all of his soul, and all of his strength. 
we get to enjoy him. This is how he feels about us. I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me.